in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this glorious epistle and all that it has taught us over the last couple of years about your amazing grace. And Father, we pray that today we understand it as being even more amazing than we did last week. That as we see your sovereign grace in election and predestination, that we would see that our salvation is not based on anything that we do, but on all that you have done in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. And, O Lord, may it give us grateful hearts, hearts of worship, hearts of childlike obedience, all to your glory and praise of your glorious grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A big problem with the modern uh, evangelical church is that it is a mile wide and an inch deep. The focus is too often on music over doctrine, programs over piety, and service over clear gospel evangelism and mission. I remember being at the University of Edinburgh as a student uh, back in the early 2000s, and I was taking a mission course. And in that mission course uh, at the University of Edinburgh and the Divinity School, uh, there was all kinds of talk about mission, uh, but after a couple of hours in this long seminar, uh, there was not a word about evangelism or the conversion of souls. And I raised my hand as the sole uh, sort of evangelical Protestant uh, and said, uh, wait a minute, we're not talking here about Christian mission because Christian mission is about discipleship, and you can only make disciples if people are becoming uh, Christians, being born again by God's Spirit and through the preaching of the Word. And, uh, uh, and, and so that, that didn't go over too well uh, during that, that seminar. But, but here's the thing. Too often, too often the church gets diverted from her mission. The church gets caught up in all kinds of good things while neglecting the best and the biblical things, the true mandate that God has given to us. And in this situation, there is a, there's a, red, a reticence uh, to plumb the depths of God's Word and a hesitation to teach a big God theology. There is concern that such a ministry uh, would be impractical, uh, that it would be irrelevant in today's culture, and potentially divisive, even among Christians. Sadly, Christians in these settings are often left spiritually malnourished. They remain on a perpetual diet of milk when they should be feasting on the faith-nourishing meat of God's Word. I've had uh, several of you uh, over to our home. We'll have some folks over today uh, for lunch. I think it would be kind of weird, wouldn't it, if if lunch was served and all everybody got was a glass of skim milk, how odd would that be? I suppose everybody would be wondering, now, this is kind of weird. Well, I guess, I guess the meal comes next. Oh, no, this is it. Skim milk for lunch. Well, to remain on a diet of, of milk when we should be feasting on the faith-nourishing meat of God's Word, there is a 
a problem. It was the apostles' aim in ministry to make mature followers of Christ. According to Colossians chapter 1, that's what the apostles were toiling and laboring to do. They sought to accomplish uh, this by proclaiming the whole counsel of God and not just select portions. They knew that for Christians to trust God in the midst of suffering and persecution, they needed to know God not just superficially, but with a growing depth of knowledge and insight into His Word. The apostles knew that for believers to withstand the relentless attacks of the world and the flesh and the devil and to live by faith and not fear in this fallen world, they needed to marinate in the truth of God's Word and to be clothed with the promises of God, because there are, dear ones, as many of you will know, and especially those of you with some gray hair on your head, that sometimes in life things get very, very, very difficult and often very dark. That happens sometimes when you're young as well. But as you grow old, people you love begin to die, have health issues. As you grow old, you experience so much of what the world is going to throw at you, to attack you and your faith. And so we need the Word. Amen? We need to go deep into the Word. We need to to wring out all there is in the Word so that we can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To stay superficial helps no one. Dear ones, what the first century church needed is no different than what the church needs today. We need to know God. It was said by a writer many years ago that God is resting lightly upon the modern day church because his word is not being preached. We need to know God by his spirit through Christ and his word. We need to know God in all of his transcendent glory and divine majesty, and not as another version of ourselves. We need to understand with greater clarity that salvation is not as the result of works or of our love for God or of our choosing of him, but rather that it is the result of sovereign grace, of his love for us, And of his choosing of us in Christ, even before the foundation of the world. Dear one, salvation does not come through good works or through ethnic ties or human decision. It comes by God's sovereign grace, according to his eternal purpose, through faith in Jesus. As it says in Jonah chapter 2, salvation is of the Lord. It's the message of the Bible, isn't it? The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. It is through Christ that we live. And then he goes on, In this is love. Now listen, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, to be that wrath bearer on the cross at Calvary 
2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. Now, if I didn't call out the uh, the text, 2 Timothy 1.9, you might think, John, did you just make up that passage? It goes along so well with Romans 9. Well, of course it does. It was written by the Holy Spirit-inspired Apostle Paul, who was writing to Timothy and reinforcing this big God theology, this grace. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is it. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, not because of human merit, but because of his own purpose and grace, his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. You see, our salvation, unlike the institutions and power structures of this world, is never on the brink of collapse. Every day we read the newspaper, everything's on the brink of collapse. It's the way you sell newspapers. It's the way you sell newspapers. It's to to have a story that's not quite finished yet, that's uncertain, and everything's on the brink of collapse. But that is not true of our salvation. It's never on the brink of collapse, just as God himself is never on the brink of collapse. If our salvation was based upon our works, our decision, our choosing of God, then it would be always on the brink of collapse. In fact, it would just be collapsed. But you see, our salvation is not based on these things. God saved us because of His own purpose, because of His own grace, which He gave us in Christ even before the foundation of the world. This Glorious truth moved a 19th century hymn writer to express this, quote, Sovereign grace or sin abounding, ransom souls the tidings swell. Tis a deep that knows no sounding who its breadth or length can tell. On its glories let my soul forever dwell. What from Christ that soul can sever, bound by everlasting bands. Once in Him, in Him forever. Thus the eternal covenant stands. None shall pluck thee from the strength of Israel's hands. Heirs with God, joint heirs with Jesus. Long ere time its race began. To His name eternal praises. Oh, what wonders love has done. One with Jesus by eternal union. One. O such love my soul shall ponder, love so great, so rich, so free. Say, whilst lost in holy wonder, why, O Lord, such love to me? Hallelujah. Grace shall reign eternally. This hymn written by John Kent is the message of Romans, isn't it? It's the message of Romans. This is the resounding theme of Romans 8 and 9. God's sovereign grace in Christ. Grace from which no one can ever be severed. Granted, of course, 
that one is by grace through faith in union with Christ. Now, beloved, I want us to keep all of these things in mind and all of the things that we learned last week in mind as we turn again our attention to Romans 9. Now, as you know, if you are one of our regulars, that this is my fourth sermon on Romans 9. And so we've already covered some considerable ground in the first nine verses. We touched upon verses 10 through 13 last week, but I thought it important to to linger upon them a little longer since they are central to Paul's theodicy, his defense of God as God, and his purpose of election. I especially want to take a little time to unpack the oft-misunderstood phrase, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, you'll remember that the apostle opens the chapter by expressing how deep his sorrow and anguish were over the lost condition of his countrymen, the Jews. He wants them to know Christ. He he wants them to know their Messiah, the Savior of sinners. He passionately wants them to know the one that all of their spiritual privileges are pointing to, the privileges listed in verses 4 and 5. The one that was born of their race, according to the flesh, who is God over all and blessed forever. But he also wants to make clear that Israel's rejection of Christ does not render God unfaithful to his covenant promises to Israel. Look at verse 6 with me. There he makes it clear that Israel's rejection of Christ does not mean God's word has failed. God is always faithful to His Word. He is always faithful to His covenant promises, even if people reject them, even if everyone was to reject them. He is faithful. You see, they have rejected their Messiah, Israel has, and has put their hope instead in the very privileges that were designed to point them to Christ and direct their hearts to Him. In addition, they've put their confidence in their heritage and in their good works. No, God has not failed. His word has not failed as it relates to Israel because, quote, all who descended from Israel, Paul explains, do not belong to Israel. That is, to the true spiritual Israel, God's elect. Uh, Now, I will say, as we have uh, my dear father in the faith, O. Palmer Robertson, here this morning, Uh, He has written a wonderful book, which I would like to commend to you. Our men's Bible study studied it uh, a couple of months ago called The Israel of God. The Israel of God. If you haven't read that book, read that book, be encouraged, and learn about all the typology in the Old Testament as it concerns Israel and the land of Israel. But there is a distinction made. There's a distinction made between the natural Israel the descendants of Israel, and spiritual Israel. We considered these things at some length last Lord's Day. Salvation does not come through ethnic ties or natural generation, but through God's grace and promise. Here we have an important distinction between natural Israel and spiritual Israel. We see this made again in verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. Paul brings attention to Abraham's offspring. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. 
there are Abraham's natural descendants, then there are Abraham's spiritual descendants, those with faith in Christ who are objects of God's mercy and grace. And again, Paul has made mention of these distinctions before. As we looked at last week, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 of Romans, Paul writes this, quote, For no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter, what? Of the heart. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. You know, you could replace this and say baptism is a matter of the heart because baptism doesn't save us. What it points us to saves us, namely the cleansing blood of Christ, union with Christ. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And then again in John 1.12, it states, but to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And in chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. We are supernaturalists, amen? We believe in a supernatural salvation, not one that we work for or climb up a ladder to achieve. Oh no, salvation is by grace. But Paul, you remember, anticipates his detractors finding a loophole in his argument here. They could argue that Isaac was the child of promise because he was born of Abraham and Sarah of a full, as a full-blooded Jew, and not like Ishmael, who was born of Abraham and Sarah's uh, Egyptian handmaiden named Hagar. So to make this point even stronger, that salvation is all of grace and based upon God's sovereign purpose and promise, rather than on works or being a natural descendant from Abraham, Paul raises a new example, an example, dear ones, that highlights God's freedom to save those whom he chooses according to his sovereign will. Of course, this new example is the example of Jacob and Esau. They were twins. They were born out of the same womb on the same day by the same father and mother, Abraham and Sarah. And yet one was chosen and saved by God and the other was left in his sin and his rebellion. Charles Hodge of Princeton fame asserts, quote, Here, assuredly, the choice was sovereign. Here, assuredly, the choice was sovereign. Dear ones, look with me again at verse 11. Paul explains that it was before the twins were born, before they had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election would continue or stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
Over the years, as I've walked with people through this doctrine, because it is often a kind of uh, a negative reaction to the doctrines of, of grace, when there's just misunderstanding, uh, when there hasn't been a lot of thought placed in this. And uh, what I'll often have them do is to open up their Bible and to read out loud Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, and thereafter as well. And a lot of times when they would be reading and they would kind of stop and sort of look at their Bible, look at the table of contents. Is this the Presbyterian study Bible? What, what, what is this? Um, uh, and, and, and there's almost a disbelief because there's, it's never really been preached to them and taught to them. They've, they've, they've been misled into thinking that it is indeed we who are the ones who are in control. We are the ones who exercise some kind of sovereignty and, and, and not God. God just sort of stays over in his corner and like a bellboy, when we call out to him and we need him, when we're having a hard time, he comes. And then when we're better, we want him to go away and to mind his own business again. This is often how people think. But see here, once again, is biblical theology, a God-sized theology that exalts God for who he is and not what man might believe him to be according to their own imaginations. You see, if you struggle to believe that the Bible teaches divine election, as I once did, and that salvation is not the result of our choice, but God's, here in Romans 9, 11 through 13, we have perhaps the clearest example of election in Scripture. And Paul sets it forth, remember, to make it clear to his Jewish detractors and to everyone throughout the ages that God is sovereign over all, including the souls of men. Including the souls of men. If not this, dear ones, then what? If not God being sovereign, then what? If God be not sovereign in our salvation, and it's up to us out of the inclination of our own goodness to choose and to follow God to then thereafter be chosen, salvation is no longer by grace. It is by what? Works. It is salvation by cooperation not salvation by grace, full stop. Paul sets it forth to make this clear. And aren't we thankful that God is sovereign, beloved? If he were not, there would be no hope for anyone. Now let's unpack this a little. When God made his choice of Jacob and not Esau, he did so before they had done anything good or bad. He exercised his sovereign will, <clears throat> and he chose Jacob and not Esau, apart from works. In other words, God's freedom in election is not contingent upon human performance. If it was, salvation would be by works and not by grace. All of humanity, both Jews and Gentiles, are born in sin and depraved throughout our minds 
Because of original sin, because we are born in sin, our minds are darkened, our our hearts are corrupt, our affections are wayward. There is nothing in us that is perfect. Not for one moment of our lives, dear one, do we ever love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, or love our neighbor as ourselves. Not for one moment. We are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 and following, we are dead in our transgressions and sins, naturally. That is who we are by nature. Paul develops these themes in chapter 1, 18 through 320 in Romans. He shows that no one seeks for God, that all have turned aside from him, that no one does good, not even one. And he ends this section in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, saying this, quote, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law does not come salvation. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So God does not choose us based on human merit or performance. Many of you do know that there are situations in life where you are chosen on merit or performance. In fact, most of life is like that, which makes us wired to think that way as Christians. When I was growing up playing soccer, it seemed like every year I was trying out for some new team. In order to make the team, to be added to the roster, I had to perform well. I had to outplay others around me. And when the tryout was over, the coaches had to discern what their selections would be. It would be based on the performance of the players. Those who made the team knew that they were chosen because of their good work and play on the field. Dear ones, sometimes people view election like this. They view salvation like this. We are all down here trying to make team heaven through our good works. And God is choosing those who pass his Low requirements. Let me share with you why it works for soccer, but doesn't work for heaven. In soccer, you don't have to play to perfection to make a team. Nobody's perfect, not even Messi. He made a mistake in the game yesterday. One, I'm just kidding. Nobody's perfect. Coaches can't choose based on perfection, there would be no teams. But for sinners to be reconciled to holy God, the requirements of his law must be met. For sinners to be saved, God's justice must be satisfied. We are incapable, of course, of fulfilling those demands. Again, we are born in sin with the sin of Adam, with this disease called sin, and and we are dead in our transgressions and sins. We are incapable and helpless of loving or serving or worshiping God and obeying His commands. On our own, we are dead, rebellious in our hearts towards God and like sheep that have strayed. But God, but God, because of His great love for us, because of the richness of His grace, 
He sent his son into the world to meet those very requirements of his law. And then on the cross to meet the standards of justice, to fulfill the requirements of justice, bearing our sin and our punishment and our debt on the cross as our sacrifice, as our propitiation. And then rising from the dead, he conquered death and hell for all who by grace through faith believe in him. Paul has been making this point, dear ones, over and over again throughout this letter, and he makes it again here in chapter 9. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is by promise. Salvation is according to God's purpose of election through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the promised one, the Messiah. Salvation is received by faith. Yes, but even that faith is a gift from God, lest any man should boast. We can't even pat ourselves on the back for faith. And we can't pat ourselves on the back for true repentance either because repentance is a gift from God, which comes, by the way, after we receive the gift of faith. Because people without faith don't repent. And people who are dead in their sin don't repent either. And so God shows us his grace. Lest any Jew or any Gentile should boast, salvation is of the Lord. Again, as I quoted last week, Mike Horton makes the point that the doctrine of election takes grace to its logical conclusion. If God saves me without my works, then he must choose me apart from them too. When Paul mentions God's purpose of election and his calling, he makes this very point, doesn't he? Salvation is by sovereign grace and promise, not works, not heritage, not good intentions, not just because you're an all-around good guy or nice girl. Salvation is by sovereign grace and promise. So what then are we to make of the Scripture quotations in verse 12? Well, he draws attention uh, to Genesis 12 and 13, that is. He draws attention to Genesis 25, 23, and Malachi 1, 2, and 3 to underscore his teaching on divine freedom and election. Genesis 25, 23, and Malachi 1, 2, and 3. Even though it was customary in Israel for the oldest son to be the heir of the family and receive the father's blessing and receive a double portion of the inheritance, it was Jacob who came out of the womb second. Sometimes you know twins and they they talk about who's the older one, right? Because one came out like three seconds before the other and they give each other a hard time about seniority and those kinds of things. Well, there was in Israel this this approach that the oldest son received uh, the blessing and Esau was the one who came out first. But Esau despised God's promises and sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge. Jacob, as I mentioned last week, was no moral saint. He was a deceiver. But it was Jacob, the younger brother, that God chose to receive the blessings, and not just material blessings, but spiritual blessings, the blessings of salvation by grace through faith. It was God's purpose that the older would serve the younger. Now, some who know their Bibles might wonder how this played out. It doesn't appear in Scripture that 
that Esau was serving his brother. But Charles Hodge explains it this way. This prophecy, as is the case with all similar predictions, had various stages of fulfillment. The relation between the two brothers during life, the loss of the birthright blessings and promises on the part of Esau, the temporary subjugation of his descendants to the Israelites under David, their final and complete subjugation under the Maccabees, and especially their exclusion from the peculiar privileges of the people of God, through all early periods of their history, all are included in this phrase, the older shall serve the younger. So there's kind of a comprehensive look at this throughout history. But what about the phrase, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? Again, it comes from Malachi 2, Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3. In the book of Malachi, God is rebuking his people, Israel, for disobedience and ingratitude. In light of all that he has done for them, he writes in these verses, quote, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? It is sometimes the, the echo of Christians, of, of our own hearts. We doubt God's love at times, don't we? How have you loved us, Lord? Though we are so blessed with Christ and all that we have in him, we sometimes have this heart attitude, Lord, how have you loved us? This was what Israel was saying. How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. God says, I have loved you. God has made himself known to them through his word, his promises, his glory, his worship, his law. But with ungrateful hearts, they ask, how have you loved us? This is the context of where Paul pulls this verse. And he uses the Jacob I loved, Esau I hated verse to highlight the doctrine of election. And it's important to understand that when Paul quotes Esau I hated, the word hated will often mean in Hebrew idiom to love less. This this approach here, it almost makes it sound as if God just sort of flippantly and callously and coldly And in a way that we might imagine someone doing it as a human being, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated, that's it. Even before they were born. This is not the way it is at all. Again, Hodge explains that in this case, the word hate means to love less, to regard and treat with less favor. We have examples of this idiom used in Genesis 29:33, where Leah says she was hated by her husband, while in the preceding verse, the same idea is expressed by saying, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And then, of course, we have the example in the Gospels, don't we? Where Jesus says, a man cannot come to me, follow me, unless he hate his father and his mother. The point is not that we have to hate our parents to become Christians. Obviously, Jesus wasn't saying that. He was saying that in comparison, in comparison to your love for me and your allegiance to me, 
your love for your parents must even be this so, so distant that it's like hate. It's, there's such a large degree of difference. And it was a call to serious discipleship. And so God, it says in Ezekiel 33, 11, does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but we also must remember that his condemnation and wrath is settled on those who are apart from Christ. All of these things are true at the same time. But again, the point here is that the purpose of God's election might stand. God exercising his divine freedom in the salvation of the elect is God being God. If he was not God, he would not do this because he is God. He does do this to the praise of his glorious grace. And again, as we considered last week, for those who would say this is not fair, the only thing that is fair is that we all are left to perish in our sin. But by his grace, he sent his son to save his people from their sins. Some may be asking, where is human responsibility in all of this? Do secondary means like evangelism or even the death of Christ matter? Well, these are questions that Paul anticipates and that we will seek to answer, that we will seek to answer in subsequent weeks. But for now, I want to ask us, beloved, how then shall we live? In light of this truth from God's word, how then shall we live? Well, number one, this doctrine should cultivate in us a heart of awe, gratitude, love, and praise toward God. This doctrine should cultivate in us a heart of awe, gratitude, love, and praise towards God, as well as humility. Humility. This doctrine of divine election is not intended for argumentation and speculation in the ways that we see it today. It's revealed in Scripture to elicit the praise of the redeemed. It's meant for the comfort and assurance of the people of God. Some have pushed back over the years. In fact, I probably pushed back in the same way before I embraced this biblical truth. And to say, well, John, isn't this a very convenient doctrine? God is sovereign. He's chosen you before the foundation of the world. And now you can just live any way you want. You can live according to the ways of the world. You can indulge the flesh. And it just doesn't matter because you are one of God's elect. Well, the answer to that is that one that would have that approach to this doctrine is not a Christian in the first place. One that would see anything of God's grace as a license to sin and to live in a way that is unacceptable, that, that is that is against God's will, and those kind of patterns of life that develop and, and, and just live in a way that's rebellious towards God, that is not the heart of a Christian. It's the heart of one who would say, oh, how have you loved us, God, taking advantage of his grace. It's meant, rather, for the comfort and assurance of the people of God, those who are in Christ, who have faith in Christ, who have tender consciences. This doctrine is for the people of God. Take comfort in it and let it inspire in you awe and gratitude and love and praise. Secondly, 
This doctrine should compel us to please and to fear and to obey God according to his word. This doctrine doesn't, shouldn't make us think we have a license to sin, but rather that we've been set free. Remember all the other teaching in Romans. We were under the bondage of sin, but now we are united to Christ. We were slaves of unrighteousness. Now we are slaves of righteousness. We were under the law. Now we are under grace. We are no longer being crushed by the demands of the law as a means of salvation. Now we are under God's grace as a means of salvation in Christ. And so this doctrine should compel us to please and to obey God according to his word. And thirdly, beloved, this doctrine should motivate us to proclaim the gospel to others. We're going to unpack this more in in future sermons, but this doctrine doesn't put a wet blanket on evangelism. It actually inflames it and inspires it because it is through the preaching of his word, it is through the, the sharing and witnessing of his people that he is pleased to draw to himself the elect of God from all over the world. And so that when we go out on mission, beloved, to make disciples, to lead people to Christ, to disciple, we know that God does not save his people apart from these means, but through them. He's promised to, which then gives us confidence to do that mission, to carry out that evangelism, because we know that we are not going into a world where God doesn't care or God doesn't love, but a God who truly does love and sent his son into the world to save sinners, and he's drawing people to himself from all over the world. And so, dear ones, may it inspire praise and humility. May it compel us to God-centered, grateful obedience And may it motivate us to proclaim the gospel to others. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. There's so much here, O Lord, and there is somewhat even of an academic nature to sections like this. But Lord, this letter was not given to an academy of theologians or a school of philosophers. It was given to the church, that the church would consider the deep things of God, that we would know you in your transcendent, resplendent glory and majesty as the sovereign God over all, including the souls of men. And, O Lord, apart from your sovereign grace, we would all still be dead in our transgressions and sins without hope. But, Lord, we do have hope because you sent Christ into the world to save us, because you do indeed promise and purpose a salvation for sinners like us. And so, Lord, would you do your work? Would you draw to yourself those who perhaps even this morning do not know you so that they would believe the gospel and be saved, so that they would know the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ, so that they would hear that call to be reconciled to God, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved, to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved and to to walk through that door, as it were, by your grace and then to see on the other side of that door, behold, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. And, O Lord, what a comfort it is to know as you're redeemed that you will never leave us or forsake us, that we can never be separated from your love. While there will be tribulations and trials and and death, and difficulties, and darkness, and struggles. We know that we are more than conquerors through these, as we are united to Christ, and as we rejoice in your electing love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved,